My name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead teacher here in the garden. You know how I like to do, like, you know, really cutesy, rememorable, you know, memorable titles, you know. Every once in a while, I'll throw a Seinfeld or an SNL clip up there, you know, to make it fun. And I'm just going to tell you, I struggled all week to come up with anything humorous or cute to help you remember this message. And so, unfortunately for you, and I hope I don't put you to sleep today, but it's going to be straightforward preaching. I really tried to make the message more palatable, but I wouldn't make the message proper. And so I have a very simple title today. It's just called The Evil Tenants. That's the name of the parable. I wasn't, you guys thought I was setting up a joke, didn't you? I'm not, I'm serious. It's going to be just kind of straightforward. I'm going to read from Mark chapter 12, 1 through 12. And this week, we actually have three screens of scripture up here because the passage is a little bit longer, but we have to read it. So let's just get, let's get right into it. And he began to, and he began to speak to them in parables. And here's what he said. A man planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press to build a tower and he leased it to tenants. And then he went away to another country. And when season came, he sent a servant to the tenants, the people who were managing it, to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Historically, they would get about, they'd split it, 50-50. And they took him, these are the people running the vineyard, and they took the messenger of the, of the master, and they beat him. And they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Spit on him, made fun of him, called him names. And he sent another servant, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat Many others, don't let that just go in one ear and out the other. Many others, some they beat, some they killed. He still had one other, though, a beloved, a beloved son. And finally, he sent his son to them saying, surely they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, the son, and they killed him. And they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's a marvelous thing in your eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, the people that he was sharing this parable with. They were seeking to arrest him. But feared the people, for they perceived that he had not told the parable. They received that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And like we like to do in the garden, uh, we like to look at the passage in three different ways. And we believe that you have to look at it three different ways to really understand what it means. And so the first one is the history. What about man and what did he do? Why did he do it? And the theology. What about God? What did God do and why did God do it? And then and only then can we understand devotionally, what about me? What am I supposed to do and why and how do I do it? So let's make sure we understand the history of what's going on here. First of all, this is the week before the crucifixion. It's what the church calls in its you know religious calendar, Holy Week, in between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. Jesus knows what's going to happen to him in a few days. He knows that he's going to be killed just like the son of the master of the vineyard. 
And what's been happening this whole week, because there's a big stir around Jesus, there's a lot of people wanting to be near him because he's healing people. He's preaching this message. It's against the establishment. And he's locked in a battle with religious leaders. As a matter of fact, Mark 11 and Mark 12 and Mark 13 are all about this battle. There's a story of him cursing a fig tree that had no fruit. And there's lessons from that. Then he cleanses the temple. This house should be a house of prayer. And he does a lot of stuff there. And the religious leaders are there. At every turn. And he's battling them. And they want to challenge Jesus. They want to challenge his authority. They want to challenge his credibility. <clears throat> they want to put him in jail and they want to kill him. Why? Because he's messing up their system. He's messing up the establishment. The powers that be have a lot invested for things to keep going like they are. They want to trap him. They want to attack him, catch him preaching some sort of heresy, proven to be unworthy of all the popularity and attention the people in the region are giving him. And so in response to all of this, he speaks this parable about the evil tenants in the vineyard. So that's the history around what is going on. Now let's look at the theology, a story of his own rejection. By the way, this echoes, if you like to study during the week what we preach on Sunday, I know some of you have said that you like to do that. This story is kind of the same story that's in Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 7, and the Religious leaders that he was talking about knew that. They recognized the story immediately. Isaiah chapter 5, 1 to 7, if you want to look at that later this week. So let's look at interpretation of this parable. I'm going to break it down for you as simply as I can to make sure you understand all the players. <clears throat> First of all, the vineyard that he's talking about is the kingdom of heaven. God's kingdom. Starting at first with Israel which God had planted and tended to and protected and later on expanding to the growing church. But that is what the vineyard is. It, it is actually the work of God on earth. The fruit of the vineyard is kingdom expansion. So when we talk about expansion of the kingdom, we're talking about the grapes of the vineyard. These are souls that God is saving, that God is calling, that God is enlightening, that God is redeeming. It's his fruit, not ours. The tenets are the religious leaders of the day. Powerful, wealthy, for a lack of a better term, they are the one percenters of Judaism. The many messengers are the prophets of old. Those who came with the message of God. Repent. Put your faith in Jehovah. All throughout the Old Testament, God says, I have things against you for what you're doing with my law and for my people. So that's the interpretation and the players in the parable. Let's talk about the relentless mission. This is amazing. I don't have a bunch of bullets for this, but I'm, 
I borrowed a lot of stuff this week. Probably about 30% of what you're going to hear today is borrowed from two men. A man named C.M. Southgate and a guy named Spurgeon. Anybody ever heard of Spurgeon? <laughs> Look at this quote from Southgate. There never was an earthly employer who showed so, such persistent kindness towards such persistent rebellion. This is a faint picture of God's forbearance toward Israel. Mercies, deliverance, revelations gather around their history. And here's what he means. He sends messenger after messenger after messenger, and the religious leaders would beat them, would shame them, and would kill many of them. Many, many, many times. And yet the owner of the vineyard, the master of the vineyard, keeps sending people. And finally he sends the final messenger, the father's son. And he doesn't just send the son with a message. He sends the son with the father's authority. Listen, you're not a messenger. You're not a servant. You are me. You are everything that I represent. You hold all the power that I hold. You hold all the responsibility. You are me. So he sends his son with the father's authority. But you know what else he does? He sends the son with the father's graciousness. They've just killed dozens and dozens of prophets. A prophet is without honor his own country. You've heard that. And yet he still, for some reason, sends his son knowing that he's sending him into a den of treachery. But he also sends him with the father's mercy. <clears throat> and I'll explain more about that in just a minute. It's going to blow you away. It's going to blow you away. Like, it's going to send chills up your spine when you see this connection. At least it did for me this week. But let's look at the rejection of that son. This is still on, all under the theology of the passage. There's a lot here, as you can see. Because of the law of the time, let me explain why the tenants were so motivated to kill the son of the master. See, they probably thought the fight over the vineyard was over. Because in the scripture, or in the law at that time, if an heir died then possession was nine-tenths of the law. It would belong to them. And what Jesus is saying is, the Jewish leaders had turned the vineyard's fruit into a pursuit of violence, selfishness, unjust wealth, and injustice. Well, at the risk of sounding a little bit too political, kind of like Washington, D.C., And there's a prophecy of what they would do to Jesus. It's in Psalm 118, 22 and 23. He quotes it. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And what he's saying is, in the midst of your rejection, it's going to spawn a movement that will blow you away. In the midst of you rejecting the message of Christ, that very message will become the bedrock of salvation, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles as well. <clears throat> and Jesus asked the question, 
What will the owner do with the evil tenants? What will he do? And a synopsis of this parable shows us that this parable was a rebuke of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees. And the scripture tells us in other places, in Matthew and some other places, that they knew it. They knew that once he was done with this parable, they're thinking, holy crap, he's talking about us. We got to get this guy and put him in jail. He is saying that we are rejecting the son of God. This is what's amazing about mercy. I told you it came in mercy, right? They're in the vineyard and they're looking to steal the glory of the master for themselves. And this is what's amazing, guys. This is going to blow you away. The previous rejections of the prophets weren't the real problem. Even though they had rejected and even killed many of the master's previous servants, right? Had they accepted the son, all the other rejections would have been canceled out completely. That one acceptance would have canceled out all of the other treachery, all the bad things they had done for generations. If they had just accepted the son, none of that would have mattered. That's what I mean. He came in mercy. Think about this for just a minute. They reject all the prophets. Then the son comes. Wow, it's the son come to us. Wow, we have no choice but to accept him. None of the other stuff would have mattered. What made the story end tragically for them was that they rejected their one chance at mercy. So let's look at the devotional side of this now. I want to give you some about three things <clears throat> devotionally the vineyard is now the church we are the vineyard you know who the new the new tenants are they're not the religious elites not the tv preachers not the preacher guys that go around on the circuit selling books it's us the chosen saints called Chosen, sealed for eternity, ordained to good works, Ephesians 2, that he has prepared beforehand that we should stumble into. And there is no chance of vineyard failure anymore. No chance of rejection because rejection has been taken out of our hands through the gift of faith. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And even that faith is a gift, not of yourselves or else you'd brag. For we are his work created in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world for good works that he created. So we would just trip over them. Jesus and the gospel is the only path to God. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life, and he is the hope. And so because of that, we can never, ever, in Christianity, deny his deity. He is the Son of God. He is God incarnate. Any teaching that says that he is not is treachery and born of evil tenets. Reject it. Run from it. 
You know what else we can never do? Deny that the cross and the resurrection were his way, his work. Anytime you hear a teaching that says otherwise, run from it. Those are evil tenets trying to steal the fruit. You know what else we can never do? We can never deny the gospel is the way, the truth, and the life. The gospel is the only way for connection and peace and hope. And I love how Spurgeon puts it. I love this. This guy was so good. He probably said this with a cigar in his hand too, probably. I love that guy. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. Heaven contains no further messenger. Rejecting Christ, you reject all and shut against yourself the only possible door of hope. See, there's a movement in the church, within the church, right now that's been gaining steam in recent years. And there's a movement that says that Jesus is a way but not the only way. It says that Jesus is not the only way to be connected to Heavenly Dad. And it's a growing movement, and it puts all who espouse that message in the place of the evil tenets. In fact, that theology is a rejection of the Master's Son. It's happening a lot. And some of these guys are very popular. I'm not going to call them out by name. If you want names, email me later this week at MeganMooney at Hotmail.com and I'll give you a list of... (laughs) It'll go right to spam, apparently. So So what is the comforting part of all this, guys? Is there something that is supposed to... Leave us, aren't we supposed to leave church feeling good? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Come on, Pastor Joe, get with it. I mean, guys, think about this. For Jesus to say these things in such a clear and, by the way, extremely provocative way, he wasn't saying, you know, religious guys, you ought to accept me. He's saying, if you don't accept me, you're up the creek. I left out the bad part of that. (laughs) It's very evident how we should feel about what some quote-unquote evangelicals preach today about the universalist message that God will save people through other means besides faith in the gospel, besides faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This clarity is damning. But you know what? This clarity of message that Jesus gives, this incredibly provocative, precise, no wiggle room type of message, should also be very comforting to know, guys, that he means what he says about being the chief cornerstone of how God would interact and connect and be among his people. So, that's all right. Look, 
There is just one gospel that saves. Unless, of course, Jesus was just a liar. I mean, it's possible that this message, while really provocative, doesn't mean anything because Jesus was a known liar. So if you believe, though, that you can trust the words of Christ, and what's the point of being a Christian if you can't trust every word Jesus says? If you believe that Christ is honest and he's not a liar, then it should give you great confidence and peace in the gift of faith he has given you. So I want all of you here, if you're a follower of Christ, what I want you to do is think about the clarity and the provocative nature of this message and know with extreme confidence based on this passage today that Jesus says, I am the chief cornerstone. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am hope. I am peace. And what you can do today is leave here in just a few minutes. You can first of all ignore all the garbage out there that says anything else. Ignore it. You can cling to the words of Jesus when he says he is the only way, and then you can leave comforted that your faith in Christ, which is not of yourselves, it is what? It is a gift. That your faith in Christ and his words are the authority on salvation and connection with Heavenly Dad. There is no need to be nervous that maybe he got it wrong. Because when Jesus gives you faith, it's so that you can know that he's not a liar. And he is the chief cornerstone. And he is worthy of all your hope and all your trust.